Well, I have a, uh, a lesson even before we open the Bible and learn from Jonah chapter 4 this morning. As you saw in the bulletin, Casey was playing Jonah Inside the Whale was the title of the song. And uh, she didn't know that I was preaching about Jonah. I didn't know that she was playing that song. And so it tells you one thing. Often in life, I know this. If we had tried to make it work, it probably wouldn't have happened. You know, uh, Casey would have been on vacation or we wouldn't have been able to find the music or choose. The, you know, it would have just been hard if I tried to do it myself. But sometimes letting God do things works out far better than us trying to uh, put things together. So that's the lesson right there from the very beginning, if you would learn nothing else this morning. And uh, what I want to do here in the, in the summer for a few of the sermons uh, this season is to tell you some of my favorite stories. So we will be looking at stories that will be familiar. But there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Uh, because uh, you eat your, familiar, your favorite foods all the time, right? Just because uh, you like hamburgers or pizza, you don't say, well, I had one of those a month ago, so I'm not going to have another one for another year. No, what do you do? You eat, eat another one and another one and another one because it's your favorite. So there's nothing wrong with looking at favorite stories of the Bible and looking at things that we enjoyed learning from because there's always new lessons to learn. And this is why, because I hear many people say, well, every time I read the Bible, even a familiar story, I, I learn something new. And that is true because you are a different person this time you're reading it than the last time you were reading it. And the Word of God is living because God is speaking through it. So it makes complete sense. If you are living life today and you are living, obviously, at a different time and you are a different person, God is going to speak to you because you need to learn something or hear something new. So that's why there's nothing wrong with looking at stories that you have heard a thousand times. And that's what we're going to do. One of them, Jonah. But I think today, maybe you'll hear a little bit differently about this story. Because I don't want to focus on the great fish as the video we just watched did. And as most of the time when we tell the story, that's what we focus on. And that's why it's a fascinating story. In fact, Michael Packard found out what it's like to be swallowed by a whale. On uh, June the 11th, if you heard the story, he was, uh, he's a lobster Diving lobster fisherman, I guess he dives into the ocean to get the lobster instead of catching them in traps. I'm not sure exactly what his job is, but I mean, that's what it's, this title is. And uh, he says that a whale swallowed him for a short time, uh, about 10 seconds, 20 seconds or so. And I guess the whale didn't like the taste. And I can imagine that. And uh, basically gagged on him and spat him out. And uh, here he is, this picture in the hospital with his thumbs up. He was fine. And it made the headlines, of course, uh, because of the story of Jonah. And we usually erroneously say the whale, when the Bible calls it a great fish, doesn't tell us what kind of animal it was other than a big fish. And actually, whales aren't fish, are they? So maybe it wasn't even a whale at all. But it was in the water, and it was big, and obviously it swallowed Jonah. And that's usually what we focus on when we focus on this story. We focus on the fish and Jonah. And there are, we know the story. It's uh, Jonah receives a call from God to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. Well, instead of doing that, he gets on a ship and he goes the opposite way. If you can see in that little map, he was supposed to go east to Nineveh. He went west to Tarshish. So he's not only disobeying God, he's going the opposite way that God told him to go. And when he's on the boat, there's a storm that comes up, and the people on the boat with him are concerned, obviously. They're about to die in this storm. Jonah says, it's all because of me. So they're even 
not certain they want to throw Jonah overboard because, in a sense, they consider that sending him to his death. And they don't want to be responsible for that. But Jonah insists. They throw him overboard. The storm is over. But Jonah goes down into the deep, into the mouth of the great fish. That's Then he repents. The fish spits him out. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches to the Ninevites in a revival, probably unlike any in history. The wicked people of Nineveh hear the message of God and they repent. And God does not bring disaster on them. And that's usually how we end the story. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we learn these three lessons. Disobedience brings discipline. Repentance can bring a second chance. Although if you've read enough of the Bible, not every disobedient sinner gets a second chance. So always remember that too. But God is gracious and often does give second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. How many chances has he given you? <laughs> he often gives many chances for obedience. And we learn from the Ninevites that when you obey, there's blessing. These people were set for destruction, but they obeyed the word, they repented, and they received great blessing. But I don't want to talk about any of that this morning, even though I just did for a few minutes, okay? I want to talk about the fourth chapter that for some reason, as we tell the story, we just skip over. And I love this painting. I don't know uh, its uh, artist, but it has, if you look at it carefully, all of the elements of the story of Jonah. Notice there's a whale, and I guess there's a little city that's supposed to be the city of Nineveh. But notice where Jonah's sitting. He is sitting under a tree, and there is a worm wiggling its way over there. So let's talk not about Jonah and the great fish, but Jonah and the worm. I think there is where a real story and a real lesson is, for Christians especially, so it begins in chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled from Tarshish in the first place. So let me ask you this. Why did Jonah disobey God? Why did he not go to Nineveh? Why did he flee to Tarshish? You might think, well, if you know anything about the Ninevites, they weren't just wicked people. They were ruthless, violent people. So you try to think of uh, whatever nation, evil country, whatever you can think. I mean, these people would skin their enemies alive. Uh, they would conquer nations uh, without any mercy. So these were very ruthless people. So again, almost imagine this if God said to you, as a missionary, I want you to go to reach these cannibals who have a history of killing and eating everyone that comes to them. You might say, God, I'm not sure I heard you right. And you might say, well, if that's where the cannibals are, I'm going over here. You know, so you can understand that if that was Jonah's thinking, and that's why he did not go there. Or remember, Jonah's a prophet to the nation of Israel. He might out of pride have thought, well, why do I need to go to this people, these foreigners? Why can't I be a prophet to my own people? So 
You know, you can imagine lots of different reasons why Jonah didn't go, but he tells us why he did not go. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, I want you to listen to that. This is an excellent piece of theology. And Noah knew it. Excuse me, Noah. Jonah knew it. So Jonah, as you read the book of Jonah, was a very knowledgeable believer. He knew God, and he knew God's character. I guess that's why he was a prophet. So it wasn't a lack of knowledge in Jonah's life. And notice what he said. He said, God, I knew that if I went to Nineveh and I preached to them, that you would go and forgive them because you are a compassionate God. Listen again, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He said, I know you were going to go do that. You, we might sit there and think, think well, that's, that's great. I mean, it's great that God is that way. And it's great that he would do that to a people even as wicked as the Ninevites. But Jonah was angry because that's how God is. He says, I know, Lord, and now, Lord, take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than live. That's how angry he is. That's how much he's whining and complaining. And in fact, it's ironic because this is what he prayed. And if you're reading the book of Jonah, it's just the verses exactly before these. Now, of course, it wasn't the moment before this. Of course, he went to Nineveh and preached and everything else. But Jonah said this when he was in the belly of that great fish. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, but as for me... I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. For you know, when Jonah was in the great fish, he had a change of heart, as being in the belly of a big fish will do to you, I guess, in the darkness. He repented. And he praised the Lord for the Lord's salvation, for the Lord's grace. You know, he said those who worship worthless idols, I mean, they don't have this God who's forgiving and gracious. But I, I do. And the Lord has been gracious to me, and salvation comes for him. And in the, the record of the story, when Jonah prays this, that's when he is spit out by the fish onto the land. So do you see, Jonah knew God is gracious, and Jonah thanked God for being gracious in his own life. But when it came to the Ninevites, he did not want any forgiveness, mercy, or grace for them. And in fact, this is what he wanted, was for them to be destroyed. So Jonah wanted God's grace and salvation only for him and his people, not for those he considered wicked. And I ask the question, are we any different? Now, again, I don't think many Christians are as bold enough to come straight out and say that, yeah, I just wish everyone who's not a Christian would be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just bring the fire of God down on them. 
I don't think most Christians are bold enough to say that. But often in the way we speak, the way we live our lives, the way we act, we do have this mentality of us Christians who are receiving the grace of God and worshiping God and close to God and loved by God and them, those wicked sinners that don't know anything about God. They're always blaspheming God. Look at their language, look at their lifestyle, look at their beliefs. And so we do often, don't we, think about us and them. And when them fall under destruction because of their sin or because of judgment, sometimes there's a a smile or a, well, they got what they deserved. Us, we're always looking for the grace of God and thanking Him for the grace of God. And if we are disciplined, or even a Christian among us is disciplined, we're calling out to God and saying, unfair! And I could give other examples, but too many times we do have this mentality of us and them. And when we have that view of the world, we can have a heart like Jonah's. Because we are tempted to be less compassionate and forgiving to those outside of us and more forgiving and compassionate for those inside. Now, there is true, there is a distinction between Christians and unbelievers. But let's be careful that we don't get into that temptation and that trap of always looking at us and always looking at them and forgetting that all of us are sinners. Jonah did this. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's moping and he goes, I believe, here to sit and to watch and to wait, hoping that God would not relent and not be compassionate and that he would bring down fire and brimstone like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think Jonah's there pouting, angry, arms crossed, sitting, waiting and hoping for destruction, not mercy. And I think sometimes Christians do that as well. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant, as you would be too. Anytime you're sitting in the heat, don't you appreciate some shade? And that's what God graciously, sovereignly provided for him because obviously there was no plant and now it's there and it's grown and it's over top of him and some might try to figure out what kind of plant would grow so quickly, but it doesn't matter. I mean, already in this story, God appointed a great fish He's appointing a plant here. We'll see it a worm. I mean, God is obviously in control of nature as he is teaching Jonah these lessons. He was pleased with the plant. He was pleased when he was comfortable. Notice he was angry when God was gracious, but he was pleased when he was comfortable. And again, isn't that a lot like us? Really, that's a lot like all humans. So that's why we as Christians act that way, because we're human. But when we are comfortable, we tend to be 
very happy, and very satisfied. And not all that concerned about anybody else. And again, that's human nature, but that can turn into a callousness towards other suffering, their mercy, or their lostness. Because we start to think not just about us and them, but me and everybody else. As long as I'm okay and I feel good, eh, y'all fend for yourselves, okay? And that was Jonah's heart. That was his attitude. Well, notice God was teaching him a lesson. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. So again, God's doing all this work. God made the plant grow miraculously, probably, possibly. And now he appoints a worm. So again, it's amazing to me. We focus on Jonah, but all these other things in nature, the ones really doing the work of God. (laughs) And they're never disobedient. So the worm comes, gnaws at the plant, I guess. The plant dies. So now the sun's rising. God appoints a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than live. Have we already heard that from Jonah? I mean, all right, Jonah, give it a rest. We know you're angry. But again, you can understand how uncomfortable he was. The day before he had shade. Now he has no shade. Now the sun is hotter and now there's a hot wind blowing And if you've ever spent a day at an amusement park, you know exactly what he's talking about here. Or a day doing yard work in the summer, you know. But it seems like when we're doing yard work, we get inside in the AC and we get the water. But, you know, if you're going around an amusement park, there's not a lot of shade or place unless you want to pay $20 for a water. So anyway, I guess what I'm saying is this. You know what it's like to be miserably hot. And you maybe even have muttered yourself, it'd be better just to die than to be so uncomfortable. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So Jonah was angry when he lost what made his life easy. And again I ask, are we all that much different from Jonah. I want you to see where his priorities are. His priorities are on himself and his comfort. His priority is on his nationality, the Jewish nation, and their relationship with God. He has no concern, no compassion, no love for the Ninevites. You could also say maybe, as long as he's uncomfortable, he doesn't really care about his fellow Jews either. Because when he's uncomfortable, all he can think about is himself. You see, this was Jonah's heart all along. And so when we tell the story of Jonah, sometimes we forget this part of it. The contrast between Jonah's heart and the heart of the Lord. And yes, the story is told to show us the importance of obedience. But I think it's broader than that to show us the importance of having the heart of God, especially for those who are lost, 
who were unbelievers, who seemed to be unlovable, who seemed to be far from God. We have to have the heart of God. Listen to what God says. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And that's where the book of Jonah ends, right there. How did Jonah respond? We don't know. I think it's on purpose that we don't know. Because we are supposed to see ourselves in Jonah's place. The question really isn't directed just to Jonah. It's us that God's speaking to. Do you hear the heart of God? God makes an excellent point. Jonah was so pleased with the plant. Jonah didn't do a thing to bring that plant into existence. Jonah was angry when he didn't get what he wanted in his comfort, but had no concern for the Ninevites. God says, I made these people. And these people don't even know their right from their left. They were ignorant of who God was. They were ignorant of what was right and wrong. They were like little children that needed a teacher. They were like little children that needed a parent to care for them. On top of that were all these animals too that God had made and was concerned for. So God says, Jonah, you cared about a plant you didn't make. Can't I care about these people that I made? And so we learned that God cares for everyone and his grace is for everyone. And so the story ends that way so that we are forced to look at our own life and our own heart and be honest with God. Do we have the same compassion, concern, care, and love for those who are different from us, those who aren't believers, those who are evil, those who are wicked, those who blaspheme our God, those who hate what we believe, those who live a life that you would look at and it's just filled with sin and ugliness, do we care about them? Now, it's easy for us in a worship service, and it's easy for us in Sunday school to say to that question, yes. I think most Christians say yes to that because I truly believe most Christians don't have direct animosity toward any of those people I just mentioned. In other words, I don't think most Christians truly would say, I hope that person dies an awful death, or I hope that person just uh, is disciplined by God in such a way that they just burn and they hurt, and I hate them and I despise them and I wish them dead. I don't think Christians say that about the Ninevites of our day. But we do something that's much more... Uh, harder to see and I guess much harder for us to realize that we're doing. And that's, I guess, maybe just kind of ignore them. 
So if you kind of ignore them, do you really care about them? You're just kind of written them off. And we focus on ourselves. We focus on our fellow brothers and sisters. Eh, whatever happens to the rest of them, God will figure it out. It's a much more passive, a much more, uh, I don't know, just uh, it's easier to understand. You're not a hateful person, but you're a person that has no care or concern. You don't have the heart of God. And so I want to ask this question. When I think about reaching out to people who are without Christ, I ask myself this question, and I will have to be honest, I often fall far short of answering in the way that a compassionate God does. What am I willing to risk? What am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to change? So that those who need the Lord hear about him. See, that's a little bit different now, isn't it, when I ask that question. (laughs) Because now I'm asking myself and you to do something rather than just having this Pollyanna, oh, I love everybody type of attitude. Okay, you say you love them. What are you going to change in your life to reach them? What are you going to give up in your life to reach them? What are you going to risk reach them. Those are scary words. (laughs) Risk, sacrifice, and change. Risk means that you might lose something, like Jonah lost that plant in its shade. You may be comfortable and you're going to lose something you won't be comfortable anymore. Are you willing to do that or are you going to be angry because you lost something that was such a comfort to you? What are you willing to sacrifice That means you are giving up something that you have. There's something in your life that you have that you enjoy and you're throwing it away or you're giving it away so that someone else can know the Lord. And what are you going to change? That's maybe the hardest of them all. Because you can risk something and have an anticipation that it's going to work out well. You may have a giving heart to be willing to give, but change means that you are, whatever you're doing in your life now, you're doing something different so that someone can know the Lord. And not only should we as individuals, but really all of us as a church should ask those same questions too. Because you know this, The COVID virus has changed everything, not just in church life, but in our life as a whole. And in some ways, kind of new ways it's changed it, but I think really what has happened, it has accelerated what was already happening. Now, we were already becoming more uh, video-oriented and, you know, less contact-oriented, if that makes sense. I, I mean, I just thought of this... Uh, the other day, I, I, you know, I used my phone uh, to get my breakfast and use my phone to pay for my parking and use my, I mean, I can use my phone for almost everything. I don't need my wallet anymore. I don't need cash. I don't even need a credit card anymore. I just need my wallet, uh, my phone. And I can find all kinds of information. I can call people. I can communicate with people just with the phone. 
That intensified during COVID, but we were already doing that. And people were already not coming to church before COVID. And they were already turning away from the church. I think it just intensified and accelerated during COVID. And a lot of people who were kind of coming to church just decided, eh, I didn't really miss it that much. So they haven't come back. So everything has changed as we are moving into a new chapter in the chapter of the world, we are moving into a new chapter in our personal lives and church life, just churches in general. I want us to be very uh, prayerful about that question as a church. What are we willing to risk? What are we willing to change? What are we willing to sacrifice as a church so that others will know the Lord. I want to compliment you on how we have changed and adapted in this survival mode of making it through this pandemic. The Lord has blessed, the Lord has been gracious to us, but you as a church have also been willing to change and willing to sacrifice and willing to risk so that church would continue. I want you to keep that mindset because that should always be our mindset as a church. I think what churches are going to be tempted to do now is, all right, we've already risked, changed, and uh, sacrificed. Let's just get back to what we were doing before and enjoy the comfort of what we always have done. And that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to, as I said, we've always had to, but even more so now, because of what has happened in our world, that we need to risk, change, and sacrifice. I don't have any specifics for you this morning. I don't have any specifics for you next week or the week after. I don't have the answer. I'm asking the question. I think if all of us asked the question and all of us listened to God and all of us was obedient to what he told us, I don't have to tell you anything. Because God would tell all of us what we need to do. So let's do that. One last thing, just to challenge you this morning. When we get to heaven, we're going to be able to worship the Lord like we never have on this earth. Isn't that true? We're going to be able to fellowship together more than we ever have on this earth because it's not just going to be the living Christians that we fellowship with. It's going to be all the believers. I mean, we're going to be hanging out with Adam and with Jonah and Noah and, you know, just all the believers, Paul and all of them, them, the ones we knew on this earth. So we think we've had good potlucks on this earth with our church family. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. When we get to heaven, I guess I'm out of a job. I mean, I don't, you know, you Sunday school teachers, you know, we're not going to need to learn and grow in our faith because we are going to be there. We will have arrived. But maybe there is things we learn and grow. I, I don't know everything about heaven. So maybe there is a place, even though we're in a perfect place, to grow. You know, we're going to be there forever, so I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. But if there is a place for us to grow, then there will be teachers. So the things that a church is called to do to worship God, to fellowship, to disciple, all of that will be done in heaven and done better than ever here on earth. But there's one thing that you cannot do in heaven that every church and every Christian is called to do, 
and that is to proclaim the gospel and make believers, uh, make disciples. We can't do that in heaven because there's not a second chance. There's no unbelievers up there to, to testify to. They'll be in hell. So it's amazing to me the one thing that every Christian, every church is called to do that we can only do on this earth is the thing we do the least on this earth. Isn't that interesting, ironic, or sad? We like to do all the other things as we should. We're commanded to do them. But we'll do those better in heaven. There's only one thing we can't do in heaven. So that one thing we should be doing more than the others, I would think, logically. But we often do it the least. But think about that and the questions, and I'm going to let God speak to my heart and to your heart. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart. A heart for those who are lost and do not know you, Lord. Lord, we say we believe what the Bible teaches and the Bible is clear. Those who die without believing in you, Lord, spend eternity in hell. How can that not concern us if we have even a part of the compassion that's in your heart? So, Father, my prayer is for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would honestly ask you those questions so that you will tell us what we need to give up, what we need to change, what we need to do differently, what we need to risk and throw caution to the wind so that, Lord, we reach in our families, in this community, and even across the world those who desperately need to know you, Lord, just like those Ninevites did. May we be the Jonas that teach them, but maybe we be the Jonas that don't have to be disciplined by you, but obediently follow you and have your heart. That's my prayer for myself and my brothers and sisters this morning. May we listen to you now, Lord, as we respond and as we sing. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.